Hello everyone, uh, I'm Jahangir Razid. I had Emerging Market Economics Research at JP Morgan and welcome to our podcast on China and Spillover. This is part of a series on IMF Spring Meeting updates uh, that we will be doing for the course of the week. Uh, so last week was the IMF World Bank uh, Spring Meetings held in Washington, D.C. We had our usual three-day conference at the sidelines of those meetings. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, we've been doing this for the last twenty years, or probably even more. I don't, I, 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 I don't even remember how long it's, it's now been the case. Um, so the meetings we had almost, uh, you know, three different uh, days with parallel sessions that covered both developed markets and emerging market topics. There were about fifty sessions, uh, and we had representations coming from the official sector, from think tanks, from academia, and of course from J.P. Morgan itself, including Jamie Dimon and Daniel Pinto. Uh, in these over these three days, um, I think the you know, most talked about topics were, unsurprisingly, uh, U.S. debt ceiling uh, concerns, and of course, you know where the Fed is going. But other than these two topics, the most uh, the other topic that was most talked about was China. And it wasn't just China's reopening, the spillover it might have, but it was also China, you know, the geopolitics surrounding China, and of course, the more longer term issues about relocation out of China. Uh, so to help me, you know, pass these topics, I have uh, Grace Ng uh, joining us from Hong Kong. She's our senior China economist. Grace, welcome to the podcast. Um, and we also have Singbang Ong. He has, is our regional head of EM Asia, uh, and he'll be joining us from Singapore. Uh, Singbang, welcome to you too. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, let me start with you, Grace. Uh, Grace, we are on month five of the reopening, and by all accounts, the reopening has been probably faster than we had thought, and the impact probably has been more than what we had anticipated. We have been upgrading our growth forecast for the first quarter and for the year as a whole. Uh, so let me so let me just leave it to you and you know help us get through what's happening with the reopening, uh, particularly on the growth front uh, and uh, what we might be seeing for the remainder of the year. Grace. Thank you, Jahanga. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think uh, compared to um, three months ago or so, um, we have seen um, faster and broader-based um, recovery um, in terms of the um, various parts of the economy um, a, a through the first quarter. Um, I guess the government has set the growth target for the year at 5% um, uh, 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 for 2023, um, which is a little bit on the low end of consensus expectation, um, but um, we do think that it is a, um, a relatively easy target to hit. Um, so if you look at the development so far, um, not surprisingly, you have seen um, consumption, um, service sector activity leading the post-COVID rebound um, in the past three months. Um, and um, that is reflecting the um, uh, pent-up demand um, after um, the relaxation of the COVID restrictions, um, including areas uh, like travel-related services, um, restaurant spending, um, entertainment, and so on and so forth. Um, indeed, if you look at the number, um, the March uh, non-manufacturing PMI for, from the P uh, MBS um, 
uh, escalated notably to a 12-year high. Um, that just goes to show how um, strong is the momentum uh, of a recovery. Um, but the um, generic post-COVID um, recovery in consumption in services is not the only area of growth recovery. Um, at the same time, we are seeing um, a, a front-loaded policy support um, in the first two, three months. Um, and um, we have seen record high credit expansion in the first quarter as shown by um, the total social financing data. And we also have very strong local government bond issuance. So in that sense, uh, we are seeing that front loaded of macro policy support um, to boost near term growth um, as well. Um, in addition to that, uh, we have finally, after a very difficult um, one and a half years or so of slowdown in the housing sector, finally seeing some signs of um, bottoming and moderate recovery in housing activity, um, along with signs of improvement um, uh, in housing prices. Um, even uh, for the export sector, which is seen to be the weak spot of growth for this year, um, we have actually seen upside surprise in the first um, two, three months of the year. Um, that's probably reflecting the um, resilience in a global demand um, as highlighted by our global team, but also um, some pretty solid recovery in the supply chain activity in China. So as a result, we have um, made a couple of upward revisions uh, on our growth number in the past couple of months. So our latest number is looking for a very strong 10.2% quarter on quarter uh, SAR growth in uh, the first quarter GDP, which will come up um, tomorrow morning. Um, we also expect second quarter growth to be um, uh, uh, remaining to be solid, 6.3% again QOQ growth. Going into second half though, uh, we do see some uh, easing. Um, so with our average second half growth um, forecast at about 4.9%, again on a QQSAR basis, that's reflecting the concern of um, some um, a slowing in global demand, uh, given our global team's call for a um, the US economy to go into a mild recession towards the fourth quarter and probably bringing along uh, the global um, uh, growth momentum down on the downside. Um, also, the significant front-loading of macro policy support, the effect um, uh, uh, of that going into second half, uh, the support will be fading somewhat um, and therefore leading to um, the slowing into second half. But for the year as a whole, uh, we are looking for a pretty strong 6.0% uh, growth. Um, that will be um, meaningfully above the government's growth target of 5.0%. So that's the, the growth picture that we are looking at, Jahangir. Um, thanks, uh, Grace. So the message would be that, you know, this is broad-based, this is across various sectors. Uh, some of it has been supported by the front-loading of policy support. Some of the support has come from a more resilient global economy. Uh, but most likely, both of these factors are going to fade as we go into the rest of the year. Uh, growth is going to slow, but still this year, the second largest economy of the world will deliver a 6% growth rate, which is nothing to laugh at. Uh, so, um, uh, Singbang, let me turn to you, right? So, um, you know, as Grace mentioned, uh, much of this growth, even though it's broad-based across exports, uh, investment, et cetera, uh, much of this growth is still going to be driven by uh, consumption and that to a recovery in services, right? And as you and I have talked about this a number of times, you've written a whole bunch of research notes over the years. 
that that's not where the rest of the world is linked. The rest of the world is not very strongly linked to the services part of the uh, Chinese economy, except for you know countries with large amounts that depend on China, China tourism. So you leave out the Thailands and the Singapore's of the world, you do not really have that direct linkages. Uh, how are you seeing it on the ground? I mean, is that is this broad narrative, which is you know the consensus narrative? Is this the narrative, or are you seeing that the spillover could be larger, could surprise us? You know, I've been personally very surprised by the fact that copper prices, for example has remained as high as they have, despite the fact that this is supposed to be a pure, I'm not purely, but dominantly a consumption-related uh, recovery in China. Yeah, thanks, Jiang. I mean, I think in terms of, of framing the, the, the narrative, I mean, there are effectively, I think, two or three broad channels we should just go through, I mean, just mechanistically. The first of which is, is the trade channel, and the second is through the services income aspect, and the final one is through financial uh, conditions. Uh, and I would say that if we want to look at the first channel, the, the trade channel, we're seeing a fairly mixed bag there. So what's happening, at least from where we sit, um, is that the import uh, cycle out of, uh, from China primarily um, impacts Asia through manufactured goods, and that is reflecting its, its um, position as a conduit for intermediates that are then uh, remanufactured and reshipped to the rest of the world. And in that channel, I think there are a couple of things worth noting. I mean, there are a couple of hindrances um, in what was effectively a, a fairly clear slowdown in the tech cycle. And the first reflected the, to some extent, the, um, the, the supply chain bottlenecks uh, that started uh, over the course of last year. And they've only just been recently resolved. We've seen a pickup in terms of normalization for supply chains there. But I think the more important driver that I think should effectively uh, um, um, uh, lay the, the groundwork for the next several months is what's happening with global demand. And this is where I would say the messaging is a little bit mixed. I mean, the key thing we're looking at right now is right at the upstream and Taiwan sits right at the, at the apex of that upstream, if you will. And the reason why it sits then, why we look at it quite closely, is because it is the primary uh, almost monopolistic producer of semiconductors, high-end semiconductors. And whenever there is a pickup there, it generally transmits through the whole supply chain of which um, China and, um, uh, and the rest of the region are, 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 are part thereof. So what we're seeing there is actually quite interesting in the sense in the February numbers, uh, we started to see a pickup in Taiwan's export orders coming particularly from the EU and the US. And this goes against the grain of the narrative where we had been expecting an ongoing slowdown there. Um, but so far, it has been, I would say, um, uh, belying our, our concerns that things are going to slow down even more. So the key metric to watch, at least in our minds, is not just the global PMIs, uh, but also what's happening in terms of, the, of Taiwan's export orders. So we will have that number coming up in on Thursday this week. And if that continues to, to, to uh, rise uh, as it has um, in February through March, it does suggest that this uh, recovery that we're seeing in the tech cycle could have legs to run. And this would effectively also percolate into the region as well, um, predominantly through the uh, China supply chain. So I would say that's a positive dynamic there. Where we are a little bit more concerned um, is in terms of the commodity piece um, and where uh, the fixed asset investment cycle is picking up, uh, the impact on the region is less simply because we're not commodity exporters with the exception of Malaysia and Indonesia as well. So effectively, the primary channel is through the manufactured goods, which um, will be reflected in the um, in electronics uh, space. Um, the other category I would say that that um, we should also uh, touch on, which you, you, you also um, talked about, is the services piece. And this is where we expect to see 
the most upside. I mean, we, we've spoken at length about um, Thailand, Hong Kong, uh, Malaysia, a couple of others. But what we're seeing is not just a China reopening, but a broader travel reopening as well. And China is just a gravy uh, on top of that reopening piece, if, if you will. So what we're effectively framing in terms of the narrative is that you're going to see a somewhat bifurcated recovery in Asia. Um, we've had a bit of a good slowdown, but that has been offset so far, thankfully, um, by the services pickup, which we think could have legs to rallies through the middle of the year. And if we are right that things continue to improve on the manufactured goods side, we should see that also join into the broader foray uh, lifting uh, growth in the region as well. But I would say the key thing to watch, at least in our minds, is what's happening with respect to the tech cycle. There are signs of bottoming, but again, this, these are still fairly early days. And finally, in terms of the financial markets channel, as as you know, you've written in the past, as and, and we we recognise the linkages between Asia and, and China through the, the currency. Uh, in as much as the CNY has provided some kind of ballast uh, for regional mm -hmm. currencies, it has created room for some central banks um, to slow the rate, pace of rate hikes, if not pause. And that's exactly what's happened in the last couple of weeks, where we've had the RBI against expectations pause. We've also had the MAS do the same thing. And we've also had uh, Indonesia pause quite early on. So in as much as we get some um, ballast or anchoring in terms of, of FX, uh, that should also leave quite a bit of room uh, for central banks to pause. And we think we're, we're coming very close to that um, to that inflection point, if you will. Now, the, the question for us is, whether will they cut? We don't think so, only because inflation is remaining quite sticky across the region, not just in the good side, but in terms of the service as well, reflecting this um, um, dynamic where we do have buoyancy in the services sector, even as we have some modest weakness in the goods producing sectors. Thanks, Singbeil. I think that, you know, it's worth reminding that we often underestimate the how powerful uh, the anchoring of CNY is in the region in terms of not just exchange rate dynamics, but also what it does to monetary policy and how much space it opens up for monetary policy. Uh, but thanks for that, uh, Singbang. Um, Grace, let me go back to you. Uh, it's the dog that hasn't barked as yet. So we all thought, we looked at, you know, how the reopening panned out over the last two years in other countries. And we said, okay, if that's the kind of reaction you would see, then one of the things that would happen in this everything uh, all at once reopening by China would be that you would see inflation spike. And as you have been writing about it, we've, you know, about four months have gone by, and instead of inflation spiking, we actually have disinflation in China. And I believe that there are even people on onshore who fear about deflation. So what exactly is happening on the China's inflation side that despite the reopening, uh, despite the huge surge in demand that you're talking about, we are not getting the inflation transmission? Yeah, um, thanks, Jung. That's a very interesting question. Um, actually, looking back um, before the reopening, um, or before signs of um, economic recovery upon recovery. We have been saying since um, late last year that uh, while we do look for um, the post-COVID recovery in the Chinese economy going into 2023, we do not think China is going to replay um, the global story of inflation spike uh, upon uh, normalization of economic activity. And there are a couple of perspectives um, that we can look at it. Um, first is the commodity cycle. 
um, as in when um, the, the DM world and the rest of the world came out of their COVID situation, um, that was actually a time when global commodity cycle began to pick up. And that was further worsened by the Russian-Ukraine crisis. Um, China is reopening into a different phase of the commodity cycle, um, as in uh, commodity prices, oil prices actually peaked um, uh, in the second half of last year and has been coming down. Um, even though you have seen some signs of um, uh, uptake in oil prices lately, um, for the year as a whole, our commodity team is not um, expecting some kind of um, a, a meaningful rally in commodity prices. So we do not have yeah, that I mean, kind I mean, of- sorry, 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 just wanted to remind uh, listeners that not, not only the, the spike in commodity that we are seeing is not from demand side. It is actually because of supply being curtailed by OPEC plus, right? So exactly. uh, if, we, yeah, if that hadn't happened, we would actually see commodity prices, at least on the oil front, uh, actually softening rather than hardening. Indeed. Um, so that's the commodity story. That's very different. Um, the other part, which is quite different, is that um, regarding um, consumer goods um, sector, um, China is different in two aspects. Uh, one is that when the rest of the world came out of COVID, um, there was some significant distortion on their supply chain. So you face meaningful supply chain bottleneck situation. Uh, this is not the case in China. China's supply chain has um, normalized uh, way ahead of everybody else. If anything, production has actually been outpacing uh, consumption. And on a related note is that while um, many DM governments came out with um, a significant direct transfer, fiscal transfer to the household sector, we had very limited of that. Um, so again, we don't have those um, pressures as in many other economies. Uh, at the same time, as we mentioned earlier on, the recovery will be led by consumption, by services. Um, however, we also need to take a closer look into that, in that with regard to services, uh, we are seeing some meaningful recovery in tourism, restaurant spending, um, and hotel accommodation demand, and so on, and you do see pickup in prices there. However, you are seeing uh, in other areas, for instance, uh, rental prices, housing related prices, they remain pretty subdued because of the slowdown um, in housing market in the past one and a half years. Uh, on top of that, a very important factor is that when, for instance, in the US and Europe, um, wage inflation is a, um, a notable factor driving our core CPI, uh, in China, labor market is still um, struggling to recover. And we have very right. limited wage pressure, if any, um, to talk about. Lastly, which is uh, for a factor which is somewhat China-specific, is pork prices and, and food prices. In that, we have seen uh, a, a, a pork prices coming down through 2020 and 2021, and they have recovered quite notably through 2022. But now in the past couple of uh, months, we are seeing pork prices um, uh, uh, coming down again um, on the back of uh, improving supply conditions. So again, um, pork prices is probably going to be a drag rather than a push for CPI inflation. Um, putting those couple of factors together, uh, we see pretty subdued um, CPI inflation in China, averaging about 1.1% um, uh, for the full year. Um, having said that, we do think core CPI probably has um, uh, stabilized and may uh, pick up um, uh, moderately um, uh, through the rest of the year, but still um, CPI inflation would not be a concern for policymakers.
um, uh, going ahead. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, right. So, so, Grace, one way of summarizing and sort of, you know, narrowing it down of the various factors that you spoke about is that, look, you know, when the inflation spike happened in the rest of the world, one factor was that everybody reopened at the more or less at the same time, right? And uh, China at that point in time, which was the manufacturing hub of the world, was actually in the lockdown. So the supply chain disruptions exa exa exacerbated the demand side reopening that took place. Whereas now the timing has changed, whereas the rest of the world is actually looking at a slowdown despite the resilience that is showing, China's reopening and therefore China's inflation pressures are going to be very, very different. And that's sort of the reason as to why good, good surprise inflation is, is, is looking much more benign. And on the labor market side, China did not have the kind of labor market disruptions or uh, labor supply or labor participation rate disruptions that we've seen in the U.S., for example. Uh, would that be a fair way of uh, summarizing what you just said? That's very fair. Uh, indeed, on the labor market, um, what you have noticed is that in 2022, um, China, for the first time since the early 60s, have seen a decline in its urban um, uh, total employment by more than 8 million jobs. So at this point in time, the government and the market is actually very concerned about the, um, the, the fragile recovery in the labor market, which is very different from what you are seeing in the rest of the world uh, in terms of of um, uh, limited uh, uh, labor, uh, scarce labor resources. Right. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And can, can I just change gears a little bit, Jan? I mean, so you've concluded, just concluded the IMF meetings last week. I mean, can you give us a sense in terms of what the, the general thoughts were coming out of the meetings, both from the investor side as well as the participant side on, on, on the official side, please? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. Question and so so in the meetings, I think you know China was obviously mentioned in probably most of the meetings in some form or the other. Um, so we did talk about you know the economics part of it, you know the reopening, the spillovers, etc. Uh, but there were two other areas where you had significant amount of discussion taking place. One was on U.S.-China tensions, particularly over Taiwan, and the other one was the longer-term aspect of what this nearshoring or friendshoring uh, shift that is taking place, what it does. So I think on the first, on the tensions, I think it was more or less agree the same. More as everyone agreed that look, this is going to rise and fall with events, right? You're not really going to ever have a situation where there are no tensions on uh, Taiwan's. So that's the first thing. I think the concern over that was that there was a lack of communication at the, at the operational level between the two sides, and that this lack of communication could lead to accidental conflicts simply based on mistaken narratives. I think this was repeated by you know, many speakers and I think that that's where the bigger concern was that it wasn't so much that you know there is a you know a tension to just go out of hand. It's just that it could be accidental because people are not talking to one another. Uh, so that was on the Taiwan and the U.S.-China uh, you know geopolitics front. I think on the U.S.-China and I think we should broaden to the to West versus China in terms of the technological supply chain. Uh, the nearshoring, friendshoring, relocation. Uh, I think there, you know, there was a, almost a concerted effort, I would say, 
from official sectors to think tanks to academics to start or, or recharacterize this um, tension or this conflict not as a decoupling, that these two worlds are not going to decouple. They're simply going to be de-risking. And by that, uh, what they really mean is that, look, uh, both sides or one side is going to have these, you know, small yards with very high fences on uh, specific sectors where you will not allow uh, transfers of technology, but rest of the world or the rest of the commodity or uh, production space will basically be a large yard with very low fences uh, so that, you know, there isn't that kind of decoupling. Um, so, you know, you, you can talk about selective decoupling or de-risking as, as, as these uh, speakers spoke about. And I thought that one of the things that was interesting to me in the analogy was that uh, our supply chains dominated by a semiconductor hierarchical supply chain or are they dominant are most supply chains dominated by the auto flat horizontal supply chain so if you have a hierarchical supply chain as in the case of uh, semiconductor then it's easy or relatively easy i wouldn't say easy relatively easy to put in these nearshoring things right for national security reasons but if you have flat supply chain as in the case of you know uh, the automobiles is very, very hard to say, you know, I'm going to pick one part of the supply chain, I'm going to onshore it, or I'm going to nearshore it or friendshore it, and then I will have national, I, I will, I will be able to, um, you know, mitigate my national security concerns. So I think, I thought that analogy was very apt, and I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, but I think that, you know, most of the speakers, I would say on that front, essentially gravitated towards that, look, at the end of the world, we are not going to get decoupling. We are probably going to get de-risking and very selective emergent technologies and not across the board. Um, so I, I have a, I had a question to you, Singbang, related to that, right? So again, you know, you and I and the rest of the team have been talking about these relocation, what's happening to it, et cetera. And I'm always reminded by, you know, Grace and Hybin that, you know, the, if you look at the greenfield investments that took place in China in 2021, it was 182 billion. And we're talking about just greenfield investments. That was one of the highest we've ever seen. And then this year, and we don't have the numbers for gross uh, FDR because the fourth quarter BOP numbers have come out, but we do know that the greenfield investments was 189 billion. Um, and so, what what are you noticing in the countries that you're covering, uh, Singbang, in terms of this relocation? No, that that's a very interesting question. I think you know Grace and and, and Hyben also noted, I think, in, in ser several um, notes last year, that the relative share of China within global exports and within Asian exports, for sure, has actually risen, not dropped. So this actually goes against this narrative of decoupling. But I think when we look at the data in slightly more detail by destination of exports. What we've seen is that they're absolutely right in the sense the overall export shares remain stable if not risen, um, but there's been some asymmetry in terms of the relative performance 
um, of, of where the exports are going to. So, for example, when you look at um, China's exports to Europe, I mean, those have surged in the last couple of years since 2018, um, even as exports to the US from China have, have actually declined uh, from roughly about 50 over percent, 53 percent to uh, just um, shy of 50 percent. So that's been a fairly material uh, um, um, decline. Um, but that has been more than offset by what the Europeans have done. So you have this selective decoupling, if you will. And the question that arises from that is, you know, now that we do see some of this re, um, realignment of supply chains from China to the US, who, who's picking up the slack? And I would say what's interesting is that it's actually staying within the region. So it's inter-regional relocation rather than extra-regional, um, though we do see a little bit of that, and I'll go into that in a little bit. But the beneficiaries are primarily Vietnam, Taiwan, uh, Korea, some of the Southeast Asians. And what we think, for example, is happening in the case of Malaysia is that there's um, there's a certain degree of transshipment um, with a little bit of input uh, coming in. And that explains um, the, the fact that, you know, we do see a rise in, for example, in exports, but it's not for example, the BOP numbers because it doesn't um, change ownership per se. So we are certainly seeing quite a bit of that and it's pre pre predominantly benefiting the ASEANs and Taiwan. And we are seeing some of that also filter into um, India as well. Now, I would say there's also another interesting element here, um, which is that if you look at the rest of the world, it has picked up a little bit. And within the rest of the world, it's actually Latin America that you are seeing some of that benefit that's coming from China as well. But I think we should not lose picture, I mean, uh, lose the, the larger point, which is that China's actually gained overall market share, even though the US share has actually declined. Um, and it's effectively increased substantially its exports to the European Union, so that in totality, its overall export share is actually not decline very much. So I think it speaks to this broader narrative in the sense that there is a selective de-risking or decoupling, um, and that's primarily within to, uh, exports to the US, even as exports to the rest of the world, particularly the EU, have actually risen um, uh, quite quite, quite strongly. Um, uh, thanks, Singbang. Uh, Grace, uh, as I said, I wanted to get, get back to you on the policy part, right? So you spoke about the front-loading of macro policies, right? Uh, and that it is going to fade, and you know, yes, it is going to fade uh, to the course of the year. But isn't one of the bigger drivers of what happened over 21 and 22 in terms of the growth slowdown wasn't just the lockdown. It was the fact that for reasons that we are still struggling to understand, there was a significant uh, shift away from is, you know, private sector support to SOE support. But more than that, there were, through a bunch of regulatory moves, uh, the private sector had been almost emasculated uh, over the last two years. And you can see that, and you keep showing me this chart where, you know, if I look at a fixed asset investment and I separate between uh, private investment versus public investment, private investment hasn't done literally anything. Uh, over the last two years. Now, you know, in the last couple of weeks, at least a month, there has been an effort by the Chinese to once again try to bring back and reassure, and this was also in the NPC, the, 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 the National People's Conference that was held in March, to get, bet, assure the private sector that they, they are pretty much part of the you know, development process and the de development plans of China. When you think about these shifts taking place in industrial policy, and I know they're not massive shifts, do you think that we as analysts are underestimating 
the impact that could have on private sector in, uh, investment through a shift in business sentiment, and that could be a positive surprise going through for the for this year and probably even next year. Yeah, Jahangir, there is a very interesting um, point that you've raised. Um, indeed, um, if you look at the slowing in activity um, uh, uh, during the COVID years. Besides the COVID-related restrictions, a significant policy development, as you pointed out, uh, is exactly that in 2021, you had pretty um, unexpected broad-based um, adjustments and tightening across a wide range of industries, um, including housing sector, including the internet companies, um, including private education, and also the uh, environmental-related sectors, and so on. Um, that uh, indeed had notable impact on activity and that kind of laid um, the, 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 uh, the basis for the significant slowdown in the housing um, activity led by the Evergrande issue um, uh, from um, uh, 2020, second half of 2021 onwards. Um, I guess, yeah, um, going as we come out of COVID, um, the government's in terms of the policy approach is clearly um, bringing its attention back to growth um, and basically to um, hopefully to recoup uh, the losses that we saw in the past three years related to COVID. Um, uh, with uh, um, uh, uh, high attention on ensuring um, the comeback of growth. So the front loaded of um, macro policy on credit, on fiscal uh, in the first quarter of the year is to ensure that your um, post-COVID recovery uh, momentum is well entrenched um, uh, uh, and sustained uh, going forward. But yeah, as you mentioned, um, and actually an important shift um, beyond the macro policies, the industry policy. And for that, we have seen the notable pivots in housing policy um, uh, starting from November uh, last year, um, following growing concern of say um, uh, a, a Japan style balance sheet recession um, if the housing sector mm. were to continue to um, uh, spiral down. Um, and in addition to that, more recently, you have also seen um, um, easing on the um, signs of easing on the regulatory front with regard to um, the internet companies, e-commerce companies, um, and um, coming through the NPC um, and through the words of the top leaders, um, there is that um, broad-based um, rhetoric of um, we need to, we will support the private sector and we will aim, um, uh, work very hard to bring back foreign investors um, and um, to recoup our export share um, uh, uh, for, 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 for the, some of the um, areas that we have um, lost in, uh, during the COVID time. So yeah, there is that broad-based um, focus coming back on growth and to restore private sector confidence. I guess um, we are probably still at early stage of that in that um, right. are still hurt by um, the slowing in their revenue and profit. So industrial corporate profit was down almost 30% uh, year on year in the first two months of the year. Um, and uh, in addition to that is um, corporates have kind of 
been uh, have gone through this kind of back and forth of um, macro policy. So if you go back to say um, 2018, if you may um, recall, um, in that year we also had that kind of um, significant concern about policy tilting in favor of SOE at the cost of private sector. And then towards the end of that year, um, uh, the, the top leaders came in to reinsure um, the, 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 the private sector that you are a very important part of our economy. And the current situation sounds quite similar to back then. So in that sense, yeah. corporates need time um, to, um, to, to get confidence that this time around, the, the private sector, the support for private sector is here and will be here to stay uh, before they are willing and able um, to uh, put in more resources to kickstart um, capex investment and so on, which probably um, will be more of a kind of a later part of this year or um, early next year um, for that to realize. Well, thanks, um, Grace. Uh, you know, we could keep talking about China for you know, many, many, many more hours, uh, but we need to bring all good things to an end. So um, let, let's end it over here. Uh, just to briefly summarize, so we do have a very strong reopening. It's broad-based. Uh, there's a lot of upfront macro policy support that should take care, that should take the economy through the first half of the year pretty strongly. In the second half, we might see a fading taking place, both because the global economy slows down as well as the macro policies uh, impact might fade. But we could also have a surprise uh, uh, on the positive side if industrial policy, particularly towards the private sector, becomes more encouraging and that starts a, a manufacturing or a private sector investment cycle. Um, the spillover so far to the rest of the region um, has been muted, but that is natural because most of it is coming through consumption and services to which the uh, region is not tied. However, uh, the fact that China is a much more stable uh, uh, in economy now with a more stable currency, that is providing a significant amount of anchor to the central banks in that in that region. Uh, on geopolitics, we are still concerned that, you know, um, lack of communications uh, could lead to accidental conflicts on the geopolitical front, uh, but on the more longer term uh, decoupling front, the, the, there is a concerted effort uh, to try and make sure that this is not a decoupling because that is unlikely to happen. It's just that it could be a selective de-risking. Um, with that, um, Singbang, uh, Grace, thanks very much. Thanks very much for um, staying awake uh, to the late evening. Um, and with that, we've come to the end to, uh, end to our podcast. Thank you so much uh, for listening to us. Bye. This communication is provided for informational purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase, all rights reserved.